Welcome to Launch, the GCC podcast. I'm your host, Marty Duran, Director of Communications for the Great Commission Collective. We're a global network of churches partnering together to plant churches and strengthen leaders. On today's episode of Launch, we're going to revisit a religious cultural phenomenon, Young Restless Reformed, which took the evangelical world uh, almost literally by storm uh, a number of years ago. We're going to be looking back on that today with Dave Harvey, the president of Great Commission Collective, Tim Challies, who uh, is a pastor in Canada and operates Challies.com, one of the most influential websites in the YRR time and beyond, and Colin Hansen, who's vice president for content and editor-in-chief for the Gospel Coalition and who came up with the phrase Young Restless Reform some number of years ago as he was covering the movement as a journalist. I think you're going to enjoy the breadth and depth of this episode. So now here's Dave Harvey, Tim Challies, and Colin Hansen. Well, thanks everybody for coming back for another episode of Launch. It is my privilege to host uh, this particular episode for a lot of good reasons, but primarily because this is going to uh, cover a lot of familiar ground for some of you. It'll be new ground maybe for some of you, but it's important ground, especially in the American evangelical context. And I guess even the Canadian evangelical context, because we have a Canadian rep here, eh? So um, I do want to introduce to you uh, two guys and then remind you that Dave Harvey, the president of GCC, will be with us as well. He'll be running most of this conversation. But first of all, the legendary Tim Challies. Uh, who is in Ontario, Canada. Uh, Tim, you, man, I remember your website from when I was a wee lad and I would go, I would log on and see your website and you really are like the granddaddy of evangelical websites. So congrats on the longevity, but for anybody who might not know you, who are you and where are you and a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a husband to Aileen. I'm a father to three children, a daughter who's in high school, a daughter who's in college, a son who's in heaven, and I'm a pastor slash elder at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Canada. And I have a blog website called challies.com. I've been doing that for nigh on 20 years now and uh, very much enjoying it. I've written a few books along the way, but the blog is and continues to be uh, the the main thing, the thing that I love most and the thing that I give the the best of my time to. That's excellent, man. I give you all kind of props for seeing that that train coming down the track so long ago and jumping on top of it. I mean, that was really, really stellar. Colin Hansen, you look like a college football coach, dude. I mean, like, Please don't scream into the mic. It's true. I in a different life, I would be a college football coach. That's not you just nailed it right there. <laughs> that is pretty much spot on. <laughs> in my days in ministry, I think I should have been a college football coach. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of similarities. So I'm here, I just told everybody who you are. So where are you and a little bit about yourself? Appropriately, I am in Birmingham, Alabama. Life is Lauren. And uh, we have three kids, um, age seven and four and six months. And uh, I serve as an elder at Redeemer Community Church here in Birmingham. Um, go way back with Dave through that. And also then with my day job, I have learned a lot from Tim and appreciate a lot from Tim over the years. And I've been working since 2010 uh, for the Gospel Coalition most recently as editor-in-chief and as the vice president of content. And uh, including in those responsibilities, I work on um, 
Well, I, I host a, a podcast called Gospel Bound. And um, yeah, like Tim, have have written a few books along the way as well. And just um, excited to be here and and uh, grateful for you guys, good friends in ministry. Excellent. So you guys are going to be talking about a, a, a really important topic, Young, Restless, and Reformed, these years later. And y'all were intimately involved in that. So Dave, I'm going to go ahead and pitch it over to you and you just go where you want to. Yeah, thanks, Martin. Colin, Tim, thanks for uh, joining the podcast today. I've, I've really, really been looking forward to the conversation. I, I think I've, I represent one of the many people that feel somewhat indebted to you men for the work that you do, for the ministries that you have, and the way that you've served the body of Christ through your gifts. And, uh, and I love the fact that, that both of you were able to join us because you've both had prominent voices in this uh, young, restless, and reform movement, Colin, by, by kind of interpreting it back all the way back through your Christianity Today article in, what was it? Was that 2006? Yes, 2006, yes. Yeah. And then you had the book a couple of years later. 2008, and, right? Yeah, 2008. Okay, and then and then Tim, kind of as a as a commentator, I, more than a commentator, kind of a scribe of it, and and an interactor with it, and a and a reformer of it at uh, at at Chally's .com. So uh, thanks for joining us, guys. I uh, I want to begin, Colin, with you. Uh, there may be some folks who are listening, and and they're saying, I, hey, I'm I'm familiar with Colin. I I know some something about Tim, but but what is this young, restless, and reformed thing? You know, why don't you give our listeners a definition and, and maybe sketch out or mark some of the defining moments in the emergence of it and, and perhaps in the decline of it? Sure. Yeah, both, um, or at least the institutionalization of it in many ways. Well, uh, you really can just work through the the language that I used of Young Russia's Reform to be able to explain everything. First, it was a, a phenomenon around the late 1990s into the, the 2000s. That was primarily among younger evangelicals, especially in North America, but really with, because of the internet, manifestations all around the world. And so these are young people, especially coming from non-reformed or at least non-denominational backgrounds. So, you typically with Reformed theology, you think about Presbyterians, think about certain branches of Episcopalians and, and whatnot, but, but you don't necessarily think about Baptists, even though Baptists do have deep Reformed roots. And so, it was sort of an, an, an interest in a discovery of these doctrines of grace, of, of, of total depravity, unlimited, I mean, unconditional election, on and on and on, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, the old tulip paradigm that became prominent in the 20th century. Um, there was just a, a turn in that direction at a time when you would think that religion was all becoming all becoming about me. All of a sudden, these people were reading Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and really thinking about the glory of God. And a lot of those young people were looking up to an older generation, the likes of, of John Piper, as an example. So, as one landmark there, you would say that the Passion One Day conference in 2000, sort of a stirring vision of God for young people to not waste their life, but to give their life for God in His eternal glory. And so you've got the young component, you've got the, the Reformed component in there that's kind of unexpected, Piper himself being a, a Baptist pastor. 
other unexpected people like, you know, those uh, charismatics, you know, ex-hippies from the Jesus movement like Dave over there. Um, just all, all sorts of these different, uh, and not to mention younger church planters, especially in urban locations. People have been inspired to start churches in, in places that evangelicals had fled, like like a Seattle or Manhattan, places like that. So, yeah, and that's really the restless component. And that was the was a very delicate that was not some sort of an incidental illusion there that was a reference to the fact that young people were very much reacting to something and when young people react to something and they're a little bit agitated about it they don't necessarily stop so the question was where is this going to go eventually is there is there going to come a point where it stops and some people just kept restlessing their way onto other things into the anglican church or the catholic church or to you know, fundamentalism or something like that. But um, yeah, there was just a sense of, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what uh, what's going to happen here. So then you have Dare for the Gospel Conference, which brings together Southern Baptists, Charismatics, um, and, also, uh, and also Presbyterians in a way that we really hadn't seen in at least a generation or two. Um, and then that's 2006. My, my article comes out then, 2008. But really, We've got Tim Challies here representing the, the blogs and how the rise of blogging. I, I think about sort of um, the first time, at least in American culture, that I can recall blogging breaking through in a huge way was 2004 in the presidential election at that time. It was really a time when people realized the power of blogs. But you had people like Tim who were already laboring away or, or Justin Taylor or Trevin Wax. A lot of the younger generation were taking up this new medium to be able to communicate and apply this reform theology that in many cases was not being taught by their church leaders um, at the time. And they found that online community. So I could I could say more, but we're really looking, especially at that like 2000, 2006, 2008, around that time, the Gospel Coalition starts. Um, and, you know, you could, I would say there were always controversies and challenges, but I would say a lot of the controversies began to be seen at least by 2010 and really picked up through 2012, 2014. And then if we're talking about the decline, I would say the fragmentation of this as a movement was pretty well uh, in place or in process by 2016. Um, a lot of it related to political dynamics and transformations, especially in American culture. It's my basic overview interpretation. You guys have a lot to add, I'm sure. Tim, I want to uh, ask you a question on and get you reflecting on what you're grateful for. But before I do that, um, Colin, I, I was I was going back through um, Reformed Resurgence just to just oh, to wow, think about yeah. our our uh, our interview today. And yeah. uh, one of the things I was thinking about with respect to the YRR was that there really was no organizational center. And then I read how Brad is it Vermeerlin Vermerlin Vermerlin how he he had made the comment that it that it was really relationally constructed, right. and that the leaders had a kind of um, symbolic capital, and uh, and so there was T four G there was you know TGC form right. had formed and you, you two guys uh, but no organizational the band center. of bloggers the band of bloggers network yeah the band of bloggers absolutely so you're nodding your head it sounds like you think that's a legitimate uh, and maybe yeah, an I, important observation 
Well, I think there's a difference. There are differences between movements and institutions. And movements are, tend to be informal. They tend to be collegial. They tend to be networked between individuals. They tend to be media oriented from platforms. Um, you know, so in one sense, there is no, there is no Young Restless Reformed headquarters. There never has been, except wherever Tim Challey's laptop travels. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's kind of the way it works. It, it's media platforms. I think that's what Brad had articulated. That's not a new thing. That's standard for evangelicals. That's the way evangelicals have always networked, whether it would have been new, you know, the first Christian newspaper in North America, the Christian history, which was during the first Great Awakening, inspired by Jonathan Edwards, edited by Thomas Prince Sr. and Jr. in Boston. Very similar dynamic back then, just different technology. Now, when I got this, I've been thinking about this, of course, a lot over the years. But one thing, when I came into my position at the Gospel Coach in 2010, my job was to sort of continue to help amplify some of the amazing work that Tim had already been doing, as well as other people like Justin Taylor had been doing and Kevin DeYoung blogging through the Gospel Coalition. But I even recall back then, the movement dynamics are inherently unstable. And my goal, at just coming out of seminary at the time, was to use the Gospel Coalition to help institutionalize things so that when the movement was, nobody was ever wanting to interview me and Tim anymore about this movement, what would be the case is that there would be these churches and these pastors and these seminaries and these books that were going to outlast all of us institutionally. And so that was part of, I had done a study in a book on revival during that time. And that was what I saw as the weakness in revival, that it never institutionalizes according to the ordinary means of grace in the local church. And so, yes, definitely movement dynamics you're describing right there. But there has been an institutionalization that I think is necessary and healthy, and I hope that will outlast any of these conversations. I think what you uh, touch on there is, is really important, that it began, as far as I can tell, very organically. Yes. And you had referenced um, people were reacting to something. I think a lot of the reaction was against the church growth movement. People Absolutely. were in churches and just growing weary of this bigger, 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 this press to do things. And you had um, the Passion of the Christ come out in the early 2000s and people um, thinking, oh, this is the greatest evangelism opportunity since Pentecost. And, um, you know, churches mobilizing around this, another organic or another movement anyways. And then, um, uh, you know, Rick Warren's books and others sort of um, drawing people into this this version of Christianity that was just trying to get bigger and bigger, uh, kind of a big box Christianity, and becoming very anti-theological, anti-doctrinal in its own way. And so, when people discovered the doctrines of grace, I think they were relieved to find there's real meat to the Christian faith. We don't have to live out this lowest common denominator kind of faith. We can really have content to our faith. And... Um, that's where I think that happened organically through this new medium of the internet. You have to remember that at that time, there was no Twitter, there was no YouTube, there was no Facebook. None of these things existed until around 2004, 5, 6 in there. Um, so, it was really blogs and forums, which is where this was happening, and it grew out from there organically, but then, as you said, began, began to be in institutionalized over time. And so, it was no longer quite as organic. Yeah. Well, you and and with the institutionalization came alignment. You had to align yourself with institutions. And then with alignment came settling into opposing camps if you were not aligned or if you were excluded 
from one of those camps. Then other exclusionary camps would emerge from there. Another reaction, just to amplify from Tim Tim's comments there, another reaction would have been to the emerging church, which was the one that I was thinking about, especially as I was I was kind of triangulate. You could triangulate Young Arts was formed between three different groups. One would be like mainline Protestantism, which was in a steep decline at the end of 20th century. That's what I came out of. You could overlap that. Same thing with Roman Catholicism as well. You could overlap that with then with the emerging church, which is really the flip side of the church growth movement. Church growth movement was a boomer-based phenomenon, but a lot of the Gen X and younger people were reacting, saying that's not going to work. They were starting other churches, church planting movement coming up, but they were there was a lot of debate there about how much should we change our theology. Some of the most prominent members of that movement, such as Rob Bell, really shifted in a in a in a revisionary way. And so, yes, part of the Young Restless Reform reaction was also to that emerging liberal theology and a re, re, reassertion of traditional evangelical beliefs. Tim, one of the things I appreciate about how you, how God has used you and how you've been positioned during this whole, um, you know, a, a, astounding development of the Young Restless and Reformed and then some of the implosions is that no, nobody would consider you like a company man of the young, restless, and reform. You you've you bring legitimate, circumspect critique, and you and you seek to reform and refine, and then you celebrate. Um, and so I'm thinking uh, it would be really interesting to hear you reflect a little bit on the kind of things that you're grateful to God for that had taken place through the young, restless, and reform. You know, what are you? hoping people will look at as they reflect back on it? Yeah, so probably the foremost one would be conversions. There were a lot of people who came to faith through the Reform movement, which really just means through the Reformed people in Reformed churches. Um, a lot of people came to faith. Some had been in churches all their lives, but had never really encountered the gospel. Others were not at all. I'd never been in church or never... Um, considered themselves Christians and were saved. And um, I see that um, maybe particularly here in Toronto, a very multicultural city, people immigrating from around the world. And it's amazing how many are immigrating with their faith now, but faith they found through the internet and through these sites, through these books, through these various forms of, of media. Um, so, the Lord really worked to draw people to Himself, and then He worked to uh, give his people sound doctrine. And as, as Colin was saying, we, many people are coming out of an anti-theology background. So, they may have truly loved the Lord, but they loved him on very little basis of knowledge because their churches just weren't interested in teaching doctrine. Doctrine divides, they would say, or something along those lines. Or maybe they've been in churches that were diving into liberal theology, either sort of traditional liberalism or the new version through the emerging church. And now they found historic Christian doctrine that they could sink their teeth into and that really fed their souls. And so, I think a lot of people put down deep doctrinal roots through the movement and a lot of the movement was not, it wasn't creating theology, it was looking back. And so, the Puritans suddenly became heroes again, and um, some of the, you know, Charles Spurgeon and others, Jonathan Edwards, who have been writing years ago, people were going back in time and discovering the treasures of the Christian tradition, which was uh, wonderful. And then the third thing would be that created lots of great resources. 
And so we had, um, initially it was blogs and then books that were being dispatched, that were being written and dispatched around the world. And um, since then, lots of other forms of media content, podcasts and video. And so the the church has become very well resourced, um, lots of very, very strong resources to, um, to help people. And then maybe the fourth thing would just be its worldwide impact. I've had the, the opportunity to be able to travel far and wide. And everywhere I go, I can find people who have been impacted by this movement, um, find people who have been reading the books and watching the videos and all of that. So, um, what began primarily in America with little outposts in Canada, UK, and elsewhere really did spread internationally to become a true international movement, and the Lord used it and still is using it all over. Yeah, I think about the. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I think about the, in the looking back and the and the doctrinal. Um, the doctrinal focus that it it was a looking back and a doctrinal focus on the gospel that I think became one of the unite. I mean, just the the elevation of the gospel and then the unity around the gospel that was that was breathtaking. Um, I remember being at the first T four G at uh, I think it was two thousand six, and it was at the Galt House, and then attending the next three or four. And seeing the, the the swelling attendance and the infectious enthusiasm that 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 appeared to be to me appeared to be around the gospel, you know, the worship, the messages, and and it was you know it it was pretty exhilarating to be a part of something that was uniting that kind of diversity around what we all most most treasure. Colin, you were going to say something. Well, I was just gonna. I, I couldn't agree more, Dave. Um, and to add one thing to Tim's comments there, he talked to, made a great point about the resources available. One that I would add here on the timeline, I don't remember the year, but the ESV Study Bible would be a good example of another one of those marks that you put on the timeline of the Young Restless Reform. Also an interesting project because it bridges two of the worlds, between two worlds. Um, it's got Justin Taylor, who had the major blog, but also was the editor behind that project. So I think it'd be remiss also if we didn't single out Crossway's um, unique contributions to this movement in many ways. Um, one of them was as my publisher in 2008, but in many, many other much larger ways, publishing people like John Piper, like, uh, um, you know, like, well, plenty of others as well, Kevin DeYoung and others. But yeah, that's ESV Study Bible was a major. You pretty much knew what you were dealing with if you walked into a church and you saw a bunch of people lugging around these massive ESV Study Bibles with that orange cover. You knew what you were getting. <laughs> and it was going to that be raises that raises an interesting uh, point, which is this movement created a parallel subculture for something, and so you could identify people by their ESV or something. Um, There were a lot of, so what we essentially did was we seceded from the rest of Christianity in a sense, and just set up parallel everything. We created our own celebrities. We created our own Bible translation. We created our own conferences. We created our own seminaries, our own publishing houses. That's overstating it, but we just set up parallel to the rest of the Christian world with relatively little overlap there. Um, 
maybe somebody like J.I. Packer overlapped the worlds and there were a few, but generally we, we created this whole parallel structure. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now is the, the dissolution of that parallel structure as it starts to maybe divide into multiple or, or other structures coming alongside now the, the reformed dish one and uh, being a sub subculture or something. It's very interesting. Well, let, let's pick up that for a second because, um, Colin, you mentioned you mentioned your book, and I think if one uh, picks up your book and and takes a look <laughs> at the chapters, um, each each chapter is built around uh, a, a ministry or an institution that at the time somehow embodied young, restless, and reformed. And and some of them are still running strong. I think of Al Mohler, Southern Seminary, John Piper, thank God for them. Uh, others no longer even exist no. um, ministry-wise, like a, like a Josh Harris. It, it, as I was thinking about this discussion, Colin, the first time you and I ever met was yep, in Josh's living room. Yeah, it was. I think <laughs> it was actually the kitchen. But yeah, <laughs> so um, Mar Mars Hill would be another example. So, so Colin, let me pitch this to you first. Yeah. When you think about those, um, you know, those implosions, how do you interpret uh, the impact? As yeah. you know, what is it? Is it connected at all to being young, being restless, oh, yeah. being reformed? Yeah, both. I don't. I don't think the reformed side of things. Except insofar as Reformed theology is, sorry for the Presbyterians listening, not something you're born into, something you need to opt into, usually comes with a certain level of learning. And as a result of that, it does tend to attract some people who are more arrogant, um, more assured of their own uh, capabilities there, incisive in their critique of others. So there is that dimension in there. But I think, Dave, there might be an interesting way here to bridge a couple different generations. And so you, you saw the implosions not just in one direction, but, but in two generations. There were some major boomer um, network implosions, individual implosions, but then also of Gen X. I think there's a little bit interesting dynamic. So the, the Jesus movement, and you're really more of an expert on this than I am, the Jesus movement was always this interesting mixture of sort of wild spirituality, but also authoritarian leadership. Some of those two things would go together. Well, authoritarian leadership is pretty hard to sustain over a long period of time without making a lot of enemies. That's one thing we saw in some of, in some of your circles, especially within the Sovereign Grace Network there. So there's the, the charismatic dynamic. And I mean to say that's not merely reformed because you could look at the same in a lot of the other networks or churches that came out of that period. It's not an exclusive thing. Then you have another network of sort of the, um, the authoritarian suburban megachurch. Another one we could look at there with Harvest, another sort of major implosion there. Well, again, was it the reformed part? Well, I certainly don't think, and it wasn't young, but now look at that. The megachurch phenomenon has had a huge problem. So if you looked at Chicago and you looked at Harvest, you wouldn't have just seen an implosion there. You would have seen an implosion at Willow Creek as well, right in their backyard. So there was something about the boomer megachurch thing with the celebrity pastor or with an authoritarian leadership structure especially if they also had charismatic or Jesus movement backgrounds, that was an unstable compound that did not, did not age well for a lot of people. Now, let's compare that to Gen X more quickly. Well, Gen X, add there the celebrity that came from the internet, 
and add there the celebrity of the unique kind of the emergence of generation-based church planting of you could carve off all of the 20 somethings in your city by pitching them as not your grandmother's church that by the way that was what the church growth movement had done certain people like mark driscoll just uh, just grabbed the church growth model adapted it to the new church planting paradigm in secular cities grabbed some reformed theology to kind of undergird it but you had the same problems again you had young people who were too they, they got too much power at the internet too much fame too soon you could throw josh josh kind of bridges these different gaps in there because of course he was famous but he got famous early because of this emerging youth culture in there as well in the 1990s and so there are just some commonalities here that are not exclusive to the reformed not exclusive to the young but are part of just our evangelical inheritance especially in north america of some of the underlying illnesses that i don't think were expunged just because somebody was reading Charles Spurgeon. Tim, one, one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about as Colin's talking is that, uh, you know, when I think about the Jesus people, there was no, there was very little relational construction to go back to the part of, pocket of conversation we were having earlier. Um, but, but I'm wondering uh, whether the relational construction of the young restless and reform in terms of the leaders made it more difficult for them to identify weaknesses i i'm thinking of uh, an article i remember reading by carl truman where he he talked about what ha what what happens when movements have what he called a skinny gene pool um you know you, where you create a more narrow band of brothers who are evaluating um i wonder if you have any thoughts on that tim I'd like to hear Colin on that, frankly. I think uh, he's going to have better insights on that. <laughs> well, he wears Tim, skinny jeans more often. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I just think we are we're in a capitalistic market system where the way there are lots of different ways for you to be able to get rich and famous. And I'll just go ahead and say it. Mark Driscoll had certain one way of being able to be famous in a in a religious marketplace that had its own problems. And now is where I'm going to get in trouble. Um, John MacArthur has a different way of doing it. And I'm not trying to equate the two because they're very different. I'm just saying in a religious marketplace, this is why Brad Vermerlin's uh, critiques are important. And this is where Carl, where he comes in with some of that Marxist background and some of that social historian training that he's got, he applies this and says, a lot of what you're seeing here is what happens when capitalism comes to church, when all of a sudden you can get rich by peddling the gospel. You can get rich by being courageous. You can get rich by being, and I'm not necessarily saying these people are motivated by that, but it's playing with fire. If you understand, I mean, you can get rich by doing what Tim does. You can get rich by doing what I do. It just, it is a temp, we would be very foolish to be pointing figures at everybody else saying, well, see where they want to see where, and not realize we're all in the same situation where we're in a religious marketplace where you, you can get famous by being good at peddling the gospel and peddling your resources. That becomes tremendously tempting. And so I would just, I mean, I, I, I just hope that if anybody's listening and 
and they hear me in different avenues pointing the fingers at others like yeah i'll point out problems but I do hope they realize that i got a lot of fingers pointed back at me that this is this is a temptation i mean tim was talking earlier about institutional alignment and i love what you said dave about how tim could never be accused of being a company man that's one reason why so many people listen to tim because they know that that he I mean, he has refused to be boxed in by any particular group well, I hope people understand over time. I hope they've seen my, you know, if insofar as I have integrity, I hope they've seen that over time. But yeah, I'm a company man. I represent an organization. I represent an organization that has a vested interest in people getting along, which is not very easy to do these days. So yeah, I mean, I, I just think there's there's major temptations for all of us, including me, who I don't want people to quit and be angry at me because that hurts our bottom line. And then I can't do as much. I can't pay people as much if that happens. I hope I'm not getting totally off base here. It's just, I'm Tim, I, you, you, you can pick up there where I, I might be wrong or, or saying something untoward. Well, I mean, it's certainly understandable that any institution you identify with and or are employed by. Yeah, and the you're a pastor. You got plenty of constraints. Exactly. On what exactly. We there. live within those those realities. Yeah. I think one of the one of the things that's in play is that when this became a movement, um, it gravitated away. It was no longer centered in the local church in some ways, and therefore that made us feel like we were all in something together, and therefore had the right to speak to one another, critique one another, um, build things in opposition to one another, etc. There's a lot of power a lot of money even just up for grabs, a lot of competition within the movement for eyeballs, for influence, for power, for money. Um, another thought is that from the get-go, we as a movement gave out authority on the basis of accomplishment, not character. And so somebody who could gain a lot of people in his church gained a lot of authority within the movement. Or blog um, readers. Uh, right. Any yeah. any measurable metric, we yeah. gave those people authority. And so um, we got book deals or we got conference invitations or we got everything else. Most of us were the younger folk were not up for we weren't ready. We didn't have the character in place yet. And so uh, we were measuring all wrong. And that's where we had so many people rise up and then blow up because they didn't have character to undergird they just picked up some reform theology along the way they knew how to say it they gained some success but they didn't have character that would allow them to to um lead an organization lead a church well wouldn't allow them to stay married to the same wife wouldn't allow them to really live a godly life and so we valued what the world values more than what god values in some ways yeah. and, let me and that was ultimately to our detriment yeah, let me let me jump in and ask you a question about that. Do you, was the Young Restless and Reform movement? Do you, do you think it was uniquely fertile ground for that to happen, for a celebrity to emerge, or do you see that as as inevitable in any movement, uh, particularly in the internet age, um, as as carrying that same possibility? No, I think it's just, I don't think it was particular to the reformed world. I would just like to think we ought to have known better. We're the ones who are reading the Puritans and their emphasis on character and had heroes like Jerry Bridges and others who were 
just good, godly men who spent their whole lives focused on the, the character of God and um, the character of the Christian. So, I'd like to think we would have had the theological underpinnings to say, you know what, we need to let these people um, gain authority in their local church. Um, I've been on the speaking circuit or whatever you want to call it for 15 years now or something. I can't think of a single... I can think of one case where somebody's gotten in touch with my local church to say, hey, do you recommend this guy? I kind of think that should be 101 for us, that before we invite anyone to speak on a big platform, we should check with their local church and say, hey, who is this guy? Do you recommend this guy? Does his church respect him? Um, but we built the other way around in a lot of ways. We'd call people to our churches who are famous out there who are well-respected in the world, even if no one in their church could stand them. So, um, no, I think it's, it's part of what it is to be human and then just amplified through the internet is that we can, uh, we like to raise up celebrities based on all the wrong criteria. And well, I think we, we paid some of the cost for that. The, the good, the good example of what Tim is talking about there to bring it back would be, would be Josh, Josh Harris. So the reason he crops up on the radar is because he writes a book. Well, he writes a book that sells millions of, of copies. That's how it, that's how it happens in that marketplace, and that's how he gets elevated. And then I, the only thing that I would add that might be might be particular to the reform side, and this came from um, uh, Aaron Wren writes a lot of kind of critiques of of this stuff and me and TGC and whatnot. And he was writing about a recent conference. I think it was Aaron who said this, but he was saying I forgot just how good they are at teaching, just how good these folks are at teaching. Okay, well, that is a marketable skill. That is a sellable skill <laughs> to write books and to be able to teach well, especially in a YouTube, a YouTube generation. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's, that there was particular giftings there that matched well the the, the economic environment that then created the the circumstance. If you're writing good books, you're teaching good messages, you're gonna get more well-known, you're going to get those invitations. Maybe the Reformed community has a little bit more affluence because of what I said earlier about the opting in. There's a little bit higher in education level in general, so you have more conferences, more travel, whatnot. So yeah, there are some particular dimensions there, but I think if we're looking at overall from the grand sweep of history, we, if we probably looked at the Reform movement, we would see yeah, it kind of looked like some of the same temptations as the Pentecostal movement, as the church growth movement. And as Tim said, that's not really an excuse because the way we talk about ourselves and talk about how our understanding of the Bible and everything and grace, well, we we certainly should have known better. It's a good point, Tim. So, so, since we're already in this terrain, let's just go ahead and have this part of the conversation. And I want to draw you, both of you out on this because I think you've both been called to publicly interact with movements and and ministries that are shaping evangelicalism. So I, I, I'm going now in my mind to the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, wildly successful. Um, and and I, I find myself, uh, as more time has passed, not simply being more reflective over it, but uh, more conflicted over it, and uh, more conflicted about the public dissection 
of a ministry. And so given what you guys are doing all the time, I I think it would be helpful to hear both of you comment on the principles that guide you as you interact publicly over ministries and and teaching and and leaders. So Colin, why don't you start? Yeah. Well, I mean, how... (laughs) How long, Dave, before somebody calls you about some of the, you know, movements that you've been a part of in the past and wants to do a podcast about, you know, talking to you about that? I mean, it's one thing when it's dissecting somebody else. It's another thing when somebody calls me up and says, hey, guess what? The next podcast is going to be about, uh, you know, going to be about TGC or something like that. Well, I I didn't listen. I'm not, you know, Mike's a friend, of course, a mutual friend of ours, Dave, and and, um, I, I just didn't listen to it. That's not because I didn't, I didn't tell other people they shouldn't listen to it. I just, that's my life. And it was pretty painful. So I just didn't, I, the entertainment value that it had for other people held no entertainment value for me. Because <laughs> that was a painful time of my life. Those are some of the just worst memories, worst experiences of ministry that I've ever had. And I hope that the takeaway will be from people what Mike, I'm sure, intended. I know Mike intended this, that this would be a way to learn from the mistakes just as the way we're talking here today. I know that was Mike's intent, and I hope that that's what people take away. But probably a lot of what people take away is that, wow, it's really entertaining to listen about churches and Christians doing horrible things. It's very entertaining. And by the way, makes you a ton of money as a ministry, if that's the business that you're in. Very good money maker for us. Uh, I mean, if you're in media doing that, we don't do that at TGC. I'm not trying to judge everybody who does. I'm just saying we don't do that for reasons of, of wanting to focus on the good things of building up the church. But I understand uh, why people do it from a variety of other reasons. But the main concern I have, Dave, and I'm sure this is your heart with the people that were ser- that you're serving with GCC and on this network, would be that there will be a lot of good pastors who are trying to exercise authority in proper ways who are going to take it on the chin and probably go down because of what people listening to this podcast. And I know that's not what Mike or Tim or anybody else at Christian today had wanted, but that's just the way these things work. And, and if anybody doubts that you can talk to all the pastors in my inbox who are already telling me that. Well, I, I appreciate your response, Colin. And I, I love the fact that you're, you're sharing from your heart. I, you know, it's just, it's helpful to remember that you're, you know, you're not a professional. You're not trying to be a professional. These things engage your soul, and uh, and and you draw lines based on that and based upon the impact upon your soul, which which I think is is wise. And I agree. I don't think it would ever be Mike's intention to no. um, to do anything but create lessons that that can be learned. Yeah. Um, and we, we we have to see whether that's the fruit of this. So, so Tim, could you talk about because because you do interact and you do um, critique and you do it in a way that seems to um, engender uh, trust and respect. And so, what are some of the principles you think about that guide you when you do that? Yeah, um, I'll try to remember to get to that. A couple of things I want to say before um, I would say I did critique 
I don't feel like that's anything that's of great interest to me anymore. And I'm kind of drawing a line around the time my son uh, went to be with the Lord. And uh, that just changed something within me. And things that were interesting and engaging to me before just aren't anymore. That that coincided with the the crumbling of the uh, the movement such that it was. So, I'm not sure what's, what's uh, leading and what's following there. But I find a lot less interest in critiquing the movement, in um, really even caring about it as a movement anymore. When it comes to the podcast, to uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I wasn't able to tell if it was, let's say, Smithsonian Magazine or People Magazine, whether it was history or, I don't know, sociology or something, gossip, essentially. I think... I wouldn't be surprised if someday as we look at the reformed world, we see that gossip was the main reason this whole thing fell apart. I think this this whole movement has been just completely stuffed gossip from the get-go. It's been one of the besetting sins of the movement. And I alluded to it earlier, but I think when it became a movement, that gave us the thought that we could critique one another, that we had to defend the movement from other people. And so, we spent a whole lot of time talking about people instead of talking about the Lord and dissecting people instead of just growing in character. And there's a real defensiveness to us. Who's in? Who's out? Who are we going to cast out of this thing? Who are we going to draw in? And really, that's what the Mark Driscoll thing was from the get-go. He was going to go emergent or he was going to go reformed. And there's kind of a turf war, I think, over drawing him into our camp and a kind of victory when when we got him instead of the other guy. So, I, I think gossip has been huge. And I'm not convinced that 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 podcast and any others, there's a whole lot of YouTube content about other movements and other people. I just think there's a lot of gossip in this world, a lot of talking about people. And uh, I'm just not, I, I think there's a good historical case to be made that we should examine these things and learn from them. But I think that has to be handled more historically, theologically than um, possibly the way that that podcast was handled. Um and especially, I think the podcast evolved as it went on. And so, by the end, it wasn't the way it started. It started very formal, ended kind of very informal. The, they, they got longer and more rambly as they went on, etc. So, I, I just think it, um, I think that just proves it wasn't history. It wasn't a telling of something um, from a historical perspective. So, all that to say, I, I don't want this to become a trend. I don't want there to be more podcasts about more movements, dissecting them, etc., until it can be done historically by historians, by people who are going to be as objective as they can and really draw out some of the lessons that really are applicable as we, as churches, movements, organizations, whatever, as we, as we progress. Well, let's uh, let, let's move to wrap up, and and in doing that, let me let me ask you both to reflect and pick up on what Tim was saying on the idea of of drawing out the lessons, and just give you guys both a minute or two to comment on what the lessons, what are the lessons that you hope leaders would be carrying away from. The young restless and reformed movement what what is it that you hope is going to live on in their hearts and in their leadership tim let's start with you yeah i i would want people to understand the centrality of the local church which was 
in theory, what the whole movement was about. And many of the organizations, TGC, T4G, they really were about resourcing the local church and about enhancing or just focusing on our love for the local church, the, the necessity of the local church. And um, I think individuals kind of got off track on that from time to time. But overall, I think that that focus on the local church is healthy and must be healthy. And um as we see these organizations rise and fall and movements rise and splinter, the local church remains central. That remains the main thing. And then the focus on character. Um, theology is wonderful, but it needs to have character as well. We have to have godly character to go alongside our biblical doctrine. And so I hope people are um, really elevating people within their local churches to positions of leadership who have their doctrine down, but are also marked by fruit of the Spirit, marked by those um, character qualities that are so precious to God. Um, and then I hope there isn't, I hope one of the, the, the fruits is not skepticism toward the church, that the people who are young and restless are the ones who in some way I think are most prone to skepticism, to think that, um, you know, the, the falling apart of this movement or whatever happens, has happened, really could leave them with with deep scars but i hope again they can focus on the local church and say movements rise and fall but the local church is is god's plan for the world he's got no plan b movements if they come along can serve the local church they'll never supplant it never replace it let's just focus on the local church focus on ministering well there, serving people well there for a little bit of time the lord gives to us and then go and be with him and leave it in his capable hands that's very helpful colin how about you um, you know, I'm, I'm really just sort of, um, I'm still processing what Tim had said, um, about just some of the changes in his life. And, and obviously I was thinking and praying before this conversation, um, Dave and, and Tim thinking about both of your experiences. And it made me think about, um, just how the, the, the people, the people I want to, I want to work with the people I want to learn from the people I want to look up to are those people who have remained focused on Jesus himself, who have a desire to be intimate with him, to be, to talk about him, to delight in him, to glory in him, to talk, I mean, to share about him with other, with other people, and those people who then demonstrated that character over time. It's one reason why it's just, it's really easy for me to to talk. Um, I don't know, just to, just to talk with you guys because I've known both of you for so long in different capacities and different ways, and I've I've seen that character over time. And it's the it's the steadiness that I appreciate. And I guess that's one lesson I take away. Is I don't I don't take that for granted anymore. I don't take friendships for granted, and I don't take that steadiness of character for granted. And then beyond that. It's um this life in this world we will have trouble. It's it's a fallen world. You guys have experienced it in I think the most acute ways possible. And that's that's the stuff that I'm drawn to to learn from to to just watch and see how that real belief, how Jesus himself and our re what we really believe about him plays out in the hardest of moments and and when i when i think about just i'm just still processing all tim's saying about critique and all those different things when i think about the young restless reform movement for me it's 
the interview that I did with my friends, Justin Taylor and Kevin DeYoung with Tim Keller in January of 2021, processing through his cancer and listening to his pancreatic cancer, his terminal diagnosis, and just listening to him saying, wow, I've known Tim for a long time. That sounds like a man who's experiencing a spiritual revival right now. And it felt like a holy moment. And th those are the moments that, yeah, I mean, yeah, what's going to be remembered will be Tim's blog, my book, uh, you know, Rise and Fall and Marcel podcast. Yeah, but it's not going to be what I take away from it. It's going to be those moments. It's going to be watching you guys, praying for you. Just, just, I mean, just, just agonizing with you and tr and entrusting you to the Lord in those situations, and it's going to be thinking about th those men I looked up to of how they finished well. Um, that's what's going to matter to me, and I hope that's what other people pick up. I hope that's what they're picking up from this this podcast here. I mean, I, I just want to go ahead, Tim. Can yeah. I just want to add one thing to the end of this? Is that you know both um, Dave and I have experienced tragedy in our lives in the last little uh last little stretch of time and you know society around us has experienced tragedy in mm -hmm. its own way and i i was able to face it a whole lot better uh, a whole lot stronger because of reformed theology and because of the, the the connections i had made the people i had met the books i had read the podcasts i had listened to the sermons i had heard the conferences i had attended all of this and so it did build me up and prepare me for what god was going to bring my way through his sovereignty so um reformed theology was never conferences reformed theology was never a movement it was always truth mined from the riches of god's word and then fostered through the the long history of the church through the the, the tradition of the church and I'm, I'm just so thankful that i had it available to me that i believed it and had it undergirding my life before experiencing tragedy and um yeah, so I'm I'm very thankful in the end analysis for um, Young Restless Reformed. Glad for the way it's impacted my life, and um, thankful especially for uh, Reformed theology embedded in the local church, carried on by faithful leaders. Oh, Dave, you have anything to add at the end? Oh, I I think the uh, the conversation has taken a decisive turn in my soul, um, in what. Colin was saying and just reflecting upon how that was touching down for me and and then also this probably wouldn't surprise Colin at all but Tim has been an enormous help to me over the last three months um, in in helping me mark uh, pain and points along the way to understand some of what's going on uh, so I think I, I think I just want to say thank you to you guys uh, and for a great conversation and uh, for being for being friends and for being the kind of leaders that you are that uh, that creates the, not simply the content but by the grace of God you know the character behind the content. Thank you for listening to launch the GCC podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, why not take a moment to do that in your favorite podcast app? Also, rate and review the podcast when you get a moment. That helps us with search results and recommend us to your friends, maybe other pastors that you know who will benefit from the content from this podcast. 
Also, don't forget to check out our website if you haven't done that already. It's gccollective.org. That's gccollective.org. And there's a lot of helpful information. There's articles. There's how you can join the GCC, whether a church planter or an existing church. And plenty of other content that will help you grow spiritually and encourage you in your leadership journey.